Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 tonight. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be reading just a few verses, closing up chapter 1 to this evening. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 20 tonight when you get there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Now we're starting here in verse 20. We're actually starting in the, in the middle of something that Paul has been saying. And uh, he spoke last week about his prayer that, uh, that our eyes of understanding will be enlightened, that we might know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, and so on and so forth. He says in verse 19, uh, the, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. And look at this, end of verse 19, according to the working of his mighty power, which leads us into verse 20 where it says, which he wrought, which power he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Verse 22, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's bow in prayer. God, we do thank you once again for the text that we read and for this time that we set aside to look into your word, to hear what you would have to say. And God, I pray that not only your word would go forth and not only that your word would be preached with power, but God, that your spirit would work tonight, that you would help us to have humble hearts to receive your message and what you'd have to say. And God, help us to be obedient. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In these verses and in this text, Paul moves, as we spoke about, uh, from the benefits of God's power towards us and transitions to the source and the availability of that power. Uh, and we'll find here in verse 20 that uh, the, the source and availability of that power that he has worked in us and that he has shown to us was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to be looking at tonight are four things that the Father did on Resurrection Day. And uh, that's what we'll be dealing with in our text this evening. Now we usually focus, or here lately we've been focusing on what God did for us on the third day. And we uh, Last week was Easter and we talked about the resurrection and, and uh, what the resurrection did for us, what benefits it has for us, why we needed Jesus to rise again on the third day. But here that we find that not only did we get some things from the resurrection, but that Jesus also gained some things in the resurrection herself, uh, itself. Now, our text says that the Father wrought four things. If you look at verse 20, it says, which he wrought in Christ. And uh, he, he talks about uh, that he wrought four things, or he put some things into operation simultaneously uh, in Christ on resurrection day. So in other words, when Jesus died on the cross, uh, he not only paid our ransom for sin, but he purchased what had been lost in the fall of Adam. Let me say this another way. The resurrection of Jesus Christ not only benefited us, but it exalted him into a place and a position high above any other place or position that exists in this world and the world to come in this universe. You name it. He is above it. Because he rose again on the third day. And so what we're finding in these verses is we're going to look at four things 
uh, that the Father did for Christ on Resurrection Day. At, at, the, at the moment that Jesus raised from the dead, God did some things. The Father did some things for Christ right then. And we're going to look at that uh, as we go through this message. Now, this purchase... Uh, did Jesus no good in the grave? When we talk about how the, he, he, he paid for our sins, He paid the ransom for our sins, uh, this purchase did Jesus no good in the grave. And so what we find is that three days later, He rose again to claim ownership over what He had redeemed. I love Philippians chapter 2, and verses 5-10, through 10, where it talks about, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who thought it robbery not to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Uh, and, and he talks about him going on to die and experience death, even the death of the cross. And it says, after all that, after Jesus humbled himself and became a man and went to the cross and paid the price for our sins, it says, after that, uh, after he raised again from the dead, that, Christ, or that God has exalted him. He has lifted him up above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every, uh, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that he is uh, that he is the Son of God, that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we find again that the benefits of the resurrection are not only for us, but in what uh, the Father was able to give to Christ because He died and rose again. And so those are what we'll be focusing on tonight. Let's take a look at four ways that Jesus was exalted by the Father uh, when He was resurrected. Now if we look at verse 20 once again, it says, "...which He wrought, or which power He worked in Christ..." When he did four things, and all these fall in line under this, when he, number one, raised him from the dead, is what we find in verse 20. When he raised him from the dead. Now, in Scripture, we find uh, the resurrection being attributed to three persons. Number one, uh, here in this verse, we see that who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father raised him from the dead, okay? And so in this verse it says that the Father was the one that, that brought him back from the dead. Now, over in John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus made a statement where he says, I have power to lay down my life. He said, I also have power to raise it up again. And so in, in, that, in that text, who was the one that raised Jesus from the dead? Himself, right? The Son. So we have God the Father attributed to the resurrection. We have God the Son attributed to the resurrection. And then over in the book of Romans, there's a place where it talks about that Jesus was raised again from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And so we see all three being attributed or brought into this power that raised up Jesus from the dead. Now, we know that all three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we know that all three work in unison as one. So you may ask the question, which one was it? Was it the Father that raised Jesus from the dead? Was it the Son? Or was it the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? To which I will answer you, yes. It was all three, right? They, they worked in unison. They were all part of this resurrection and this power that it took to raise Jesus up from the dead. Now, here in this text, we are talking about God the Father's blessings upon the Son... So here we find that the Father is attributed as the one who raised Him from the dead. Now let me say this about the resurrection. The human race has figured out how to do some amazing things. If you look around through history, uh, the more I study of history, the more I realize that you, know, you go back to Jesus' day, you go back to Abraham's day, 
These guys were not barbarians running around. I mean, these were smart, smart people. They They were very educated. And for their time and with their technology, they were accomplishing things that if we sent people out to do today with the tools they had, we'd have no idea how to do it, right? I mean, these, these were smart guys. You look around at some of the architecture that's out there, some of the inventions that have been made, uh, the, the technology that has developed over the centuries, and we're seeing more and more. Once we caught on to this technology we have as far as computers and Internet and things like that are concerned, once we caught on to that, I mean, it has been excelling rapidly as we go along. And each year, we're seeing that we're able to do more and more and more and more through human intuition and invention and so on and so forth. I mean, man has come up and figured out how to do some amazing, amazing things. There are men and women who can do incredible things with their minds, with their bodies. You ever seen those those people that uh, contortionists, you know, things they they can do? I, I mean, it just looks so painful. I'm not even going to try to do some of the stuff they do. Things that they do with their, their voices, some of the, uh, the beautiful things, that, you know, the voices that we've heard or, or uh, ways that, that people with their, just the, the sound of their words can, uh, can motivate and stir up the hearts of people around them. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that man has been able to accomplish. And listen, what we haven't figured out how to do on our own, some have learned how to present the illusion that they can. We've got illusionists who can make it look like they're rising off the ground. We've, we've got people that can do all kinds of amazing things, present all kinds of amazing illusions. And, and with the computer age and the things we have, as far as that is concerned, uh, those things have been made even more possible to create these illusions. I saw someone the other day, I don't know where it was, I think I was just flipping through Facebook, and, uh, and there was a video that was playing, and this guy stood on one side of the swimming pool and walked across the water to the other side of the swimming pool. I don't know how he did it. I don't believe that he did it. But he sure gave the illusion that he could. And so, you know, how does someone come up with this? How, how does man invent or, or is able to do a lot of the things that he's able to do? I mean, mankind is, uh, is truly amazing, some of the things that, that they can come up with. But listen, men can do amazing things, but I want you to understand, no one, not any of them, have ever been able to raise themselves from the dead. Those people, those great, great inventors, those great uh, leaders of history, those, those great builders and whoever it might be, uh, if they live long enough, they're in the ground. They're dead. But I want you to know there's one who was able to raise himself from the dead. One who did come back from the dead. And as hard as we might try, no one can mimic that. So much was accomplished in that resurrection morning. So many scriptures were fulfilled and so many victories were won. Yet these verses speak not only of his resurrection and how it benefited us, but we see how it benefited him as well. Now we see in, in the next couple of verses that not only did the Father raise him from the dead, but here's what he did for Christ. He set him at his right hand. Look in uh, chapter uh, 1 verse 20 uh, on down through verse 21. It says, uh, we, we follow, it says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And look at this. And set him at his own right hand. Where? In the heavenly places. 
It says in verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in, uh, but also in that which is to come. Now, I want us to look at a couple of things here as, as we think about the fact that he set him at his right hand. The word set here in verse 20 uh, literally means to be seated. Not just to place someone somewhere, but to put them in a seated position. So that after Christ was raised from the dead, he took a seat next to the Father in heaven. He was seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Now, this teaching or this truth is actually a quote from uh, Psalm uh, Psalm 110 verse 1, uh, which says this. If you want to turn over there with me. Unless y'all have electronics, nobody's turning, but... uh, I'll go ahead and go there. Uh, Psalm 110 and verse 1 says this. Uh, it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Over in Mark chapter 16 and verse 19, uh, it talks about this. Mark 16. Verse 19 it says, um, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, Look at this, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Now I want us to think for a second what it means to be seated at the right hand. For Christ to be seated at the right hand of God signified uh, that he is not only the future heir of everything God owns, but that he is a present and equal authority with God. Let's look at it like this. If a king over a kingdom sits his son at his right hand, Understand that technically the king is still acting king, but what he has done by sitting his his son at his right hand is he has granted him all equal authority and power to rule and to reign over his kingdom. And when it says that after Christ rose from the dead, or really at the moment, it says when he rose from the dead, he set him or he seated him at the right hand of the Father. Whether or not he immediately went and took a a place, went and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the seat became his the moment or the second that he rose again from the dead. He was seated or he took that seat uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, where was Jesus seated? I want you to notice this. Not only at the right hand of the throne of God, but look, it says that he sat him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, I can't help but look at this and think about all the things that we've already discussed so far. Back up in verse 3, he talks about these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Where? They're located in heavenly places. Again, we're talking about the spiritual realm. The fact that what you see here, what you can see and smell and taste and touch and and all that, that, that's not all there is that exists. That there's not only a physical realm, but there's a whole other realm that we've never seen. It's the spiritual realm. And here in Ephesians, it's called over and over and over again, it's called heavenly places. So that when Jesus rose again from the dead, he didn't just take a seat next to the Father, but he was seated in heavenly places where all of our blessings are located. He is seated in heavenly places over everything that exists in that realm. And not only in that realm, but in the realm, the physical realm where we live as well. I know this sounds like something from a science fiction movie, but I'm telling you, uh, that's what this, this is talking about. That, that there's a spiritual part of this universe 
just as, just as real, just as alive and vibrant and working right now as what we see in the physical. Matter of fact, if we had eyes that could be opened right now to the spiritual realm, you would find that there are spiritual beings here with us present tonight, even as we sit and speak. Kind of a, a, a scary thought or, or maybe an, a, a startling thought, but the truth is if we could see, if our eyes could be opened, uh, like uh, like Joshua's and like who was the other Elijah or whoever that was that that had their eyes open to those things around them, we would see the very same things uh, even here tonight. It says that is where he has been seated in heavenly places. Now I want you to notice in verse twenty one that Jesus was not only seated on a throne; he was not only seated in heavenly places, but he was also seated over some things. We find this in twenty one. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. Now, let's go over what these things are, because some of these words may not make sense to us. But when it says that he's seated over all principalities, literally what it means is he is seated over all rulers. Over everyone who is in a ruler position, he is seated over them. It says all powers. That word power is exousia, meaning authority. Over everyone who has authority, he is seated high above them. Over all might or all powers is what that word means. And it says all dominion or lordship, he is seated high above every single one of those things. And notice this also at the very end. Just in case he didn't cover something, he says, and above every name that is named. I'm going to say it like this. If you have a name, He's over you. Amen. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. He is highly exalted above all that is. That's what this verse tells us. The moment He was resurrected from the dead, He was seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, and He was placed over. He was set over Everything that exists in this, in both the spiritual realm, the heavenly heavenly places, and in this world uh, as well. I want you to understand that this list applies to the powers in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm together, both in this age and in the one to come. Here's what this means. This means if we're talking about in, in the spiritual realm, we're talking about in heavenly places, that Christ is seated far above. Satan, he is seated far above any of Satan's minions, any of his captains, any of his, the people that are ruling under him. He is seated far above anything or anyone located in, in, in the universe. And I want you to notice he's not just seated, he's not just seated above, it says he is seated far above, high above anyone else. A name above all names. I want you to also notice in verse 22 that not only did he set him at his right hand, uh, but he put all things under his feet. Look at verse 22. It says he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. The, the third we're looking at is that he's put all things under his feet. Now look, not only did God put Jesus far above all things, but he also, as we see here, put all things under his feet. Now, I, I want to make a distinction there. It sounds, may sound the same, but I want to make a distinction. In verse 21, if you look back there, it says that he's placed where? Far above. 
Okay? He's placed far above all these things. In verse 22, it says that these things are placed where? Under His feet. There is a difference here. I know it may not sound like much of this, but, but there is a difference here. You see, in verse 21, He is made the Lord of all. In verse 22, He is the victor over all. In verse 21, He is the King above all kings. In verse 23, He is the champion who has defeated all powers opposed to God. In verse 21, we find that this makes Him unchallenged. There's no one that could reach His state or His position. But in verse 23, He's not only unchallenged, He's undefeated. No one could defeat His power, His authority. You see, Jesus is not just seated higher. But literally what we're seeing here is that His feet are pressing down on the necks of all His enemies. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Over in that verse, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, we saw where some of this comes into play. It says, My Lord said unto uh, my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy what? Thy footstool. Here's literally what would happen back in those days when a, uh, an enemy king had been defeated or an enemy uh, ruler had been defeated. They would bring that, that leader, they would bring him in to, to the winning king, and that king would put his feet on the throats of his enemies, showing that he had conquered and completely defeated that kingdom or, uh, or that empire, whatever it may be. So not, not only is he seated high above anyone in his own kingdom, but he is the victor and the champion over uh, the enemy kingdom that, that was fighting against him. And we find the very same thing here. Not only has he been seated at the right hand of God, but all of his enemies have been made his footstool. You know what that means? It means that we're not waiting on Christ to win some victory at a later date, some, somewhere down the road. We've got all these things in Revelation about these wars that are going to be fought and these things that are going to be done. I want you to understand that we're just waiting for the play button to be hit there. Christ has already won He has already been seated. Those victories are as good as done because He is the champion of all His enemies. Right now. I want you to know as well that that not only benefited Him, but it also benefits you because in Christ, you are more than conquerors through Him who loves you. If you will, turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter, 5, chapter 15. It's not far from where you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's look at verse 17 when you get there. Let's read some things about the resurrection of Christ and, and what this did for Him according to the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 and verse 17. There had been some question about whether the resurrection had actually taken place and Paul said in verse 17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're in trouble. But look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are, are Christ at his coming. Then come at the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. What is he? He is the conqueror over all authority and rule and power. Verse 25, for he must reign when? Till he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Why? Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifested that he is accepted, uh, which did put all things under him. What does that make him? It makes him the Lord above all lords, the champion over all enemies. I want us to look at one last thing. Not only did the resurrection set him at the right hand of God, put all things under his feet, but the last thing we'll find here, how it applies to us directly, is that it gave him headship over the church. If you'll look with me in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, And to put all things under his feet, and look at this, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. There really can't be enough emphasis on these verses and what they mean. In Colossians, we find an emphasis on the church being the body of Christ, whereas here in Ephesians, uh, we find an emphasis on Christ being the head of the church. A head here means superior or that which gives life to. So what we find is that he not only has been set at the right hand of God and, and not only has all things been put under his feet, but he has been given complete superiority and lordship over the church. And as the superior and, and the Lord over the church, he is also the one that gives life to the church. I want you to think about this. Without the head to give power, authority, and life to the church, what good is it? If we decide to become a church that's going to function outside of Christ or outside the power and the authority of Christ, if we're going to go do our own thing and decide who we're going to witness to and who we're not going to witness to, decide who we're going to accept to the church and who we're not going to accept to the church, if we're going to decide uh, you know, what things, what commands we are going to keep and the ones that we're not going to keep, if we're going to make these decisions on our own, then Christ is not the head of the church. We've got to love who He loves. We have to accept who He accepts. We have to love and, and reach out to the ones that He wants to love and reach out to. We have to obey the commands that He has given. Otherwise, He's not the head of the church. And if a church exists over which Christ is not the head and the ruler and the authority and the life giver, then what purpose could that church possibly serve? But I want you to see this. When Christ, the head, and the church, the body, are in union with one another, there is no limit to what good that church can do. Why? Because it's, it's located under the proper authority, it's working under the proper power. 
Now, God's, or Paul's going to unpack some more of this issue a little bit later over in chapter 5 and show us our response to his headship, him being the head over the church. But in this verse, we're just being shown the exaltation of Christ by the Heavenly Father, that he has been placed in a, a position of headship and superiority over the church. Now, listen, this is such an amazing verse because where we pause to see uh, the blessings upon Christ, where we stop for a moment about all the spiritual blessings that God has given to us, and we start looking at Jesus and how God has exalted him and has lifted him up, we find that at the very end of this verse, it again turns right back to us. You see, we are not only recipients of spiritual blessings. We are not only predestinated, chosen, and adopted. We're not only redeemed, forgiven, and recipients of grace. We're not only a part of this great inheritance in Christ and sealed with His Holy Spirit. And listen, all of those would be enough. All of those are more than enough than what we deserve. But Paul says, I want you to look at Jesus for a moment. I want you to see where He is. Who He is. I want you to look at Him high and lifted up, enthroned on high and worthy of all power and glory and dominion. Look at the One who fills all in all. Paul says, you see? Because I want to tell you something. You are His physical manifestation to the world. It says here, you are the one, the church, you are the one who fills the one who fills all in all. We are the one who is being filled by the very life giver, the the very one who fills all things. Just as Christ is the fullness of the Godhead, it says here that the church is the fullness of Christ. That His fullness dwells and is manifested in us. What this does is it points us right back to seeing where He is and how He's high lifted up. And how we as the church, if we're the ones, if we are His body and we're the ones being filled with Him, with with the one who fills everything. If we're the ones being filled in here, it points us right back to the purpose that God has for us in this world. Not to come sit in a church meeting but to be a church that shines the light of Christ, that shows the attitude and reflects the actions of our Lord and Savior, of our head. We are the fullness of Him. You know, this leads us to another humbling truth or a humbling question. If through the words and actions of my body, If through my words and actions, I testify of who I am here. And I don't. I do, don't I? If you watch my actions and you listen to my words, it's going to show you. It's going to reveal exactly who I am here. If that's true, and if our body, or if our church is the body of Christ then what is our church saying about our head? How is our church reflecting the head of our church, Christ? When others see us in the community, when they see us and they watch us and they hear us, 
What are they seeing of Jesus? What impression are they getting? Now, I'm not going to answer that question. That's a question we need to be asking. Because if we are the body of Christ, then we need to be showing the very nature and the very character and the very love and passion of Christ. If not, then I have some news for you. If not, then he's not the head of our church. Something else is. If we are the body of Christ and the ones being filled with Christ, then understand our actions and attitudes should always reflect Christ. Now I want to close with one, one other thought here. And we're going to close for the night. But I want you to see something else that I, I think is just amazing when we look at this. Listen, if Christ is seated in heavenly places, and He is, if He has been given authority and made the heir of all things, and He has, and if we are in Christ and heirs with Christ, chapter 1 tells us that we are, if all of this is true, then I want you to see this, we are also seated with Him. If Christ is highly exalted and seated with God in the heavens, and if we are in Christ, then where does that put us? It puts us seated with Him. Now here's what I really think. I think Paul wanted us to see where Christ was, where He was seated, and and how highly exalted it was. But I think it all leads back to another point, that we who are in Christ are seated with Him. Now, I want you to look just for a second, chapter 2 and verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6 says that He has raised us up together, and look at this, and made us to sit together in heavenly places, where? In Christ. Now, am I saying that we have been made the ruler and the authority and the king of... No, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that because we are in Christ... We are seated with Christ. And that says a whole lot of what He wants us to be as His children. So listen, if we are seated with Christ, in Christ, in heavenly places, if we are the body of Christ, if we are the fullness of Christ manifested to the world around us, then let's act like it. Let's live like it. Let's be the church, the people that He's called us to be, that He's saved us to be.